Good morning. The second lesson from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke. I will read chapter 12, verses 22 to 31. Listen now for the word of the Lord. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to the span of your life? If then you are not able to do so, small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep seeking what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that seek all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food satisfy our daily need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. When I was 16 years old, my father gave me my first driving lesson. He found a big stick and placed it less than 10 yards in front of the car. Then he instructed me to drive until I reached the stick. He did this a few more times. When I complained about his teaching tactic that I wanted to be free to drive further than just a handful of yards, he turned to me and said, everyone has to learn how to stop if they want to learn how to go. The word Sabbath has a Hebrew root that means to stop, to desist. The fourth of God's commandments, the commandment to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, is God's cease and desist order. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your land. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word holy, kadosh, means set apart. 
God commands us to set apart the Sabbath day, the day when we cease our work, when we rest. School will start in a little over a week for our youth. Pretty soon, our teenagers will become very busy. This fall, it won't be unusual for them to be juggling school, sports, rehearsals, college applications, social life with friends, and church. Every youth minister knows what it is like to try to schedule confirmation events youth Sundays, retreats, and service projects around the packed schedules of young people playing league soccer, performing in a play, working a part-time job, training to be an Olympic skater, taking SAT prep classes, and visiting colleges. Once school starts, even though research by the National Sleep Foundation recommends teens to sleep between eight and a half and nine and a quarter hours each night, The actual sleep that they get, on average, will fall between seven and seven and a half hours per night. We may wonder how much damage one lost hour of sleep can really do. Well, research conducted by sleep doctor Avi Sade and his team found that after just three nights of losing a single hour of sleep, teenagers began to behave as though they lost the equivalent of two years of brain maturation. In other words, the sleep-deprived sixth grader functioned cognitively like an average fourth grader. A few years ago, ordained Mennonite pastor and director of the Farminary Project at Princeton Theological Seminary, Nathan Stuckey, conducted research one spring semester among 39 seniors at a progressive Christian high school in eastern Pennsylvania. He wanted to learn from them their experiences and understandings of rest and the Sabbath. To get started, he asked the students to complete a seven-day time diary in which they listed everything they spent time doing over a full week. Then he asked them, using a highlighter, to go through every entry line by line and highlight every instance of rest using their own definitions of rest. Then he asked them to go through their diaries one more time, and this time to indicate any times when they felt particularly connected to God or others or even to themselves. This last exercise was intended to see if there would be a relationship between some instances of rest and their feelings of connection to God and others and themselves. These time diaries provided the starting point for many hours of focus groups and interviews through which Nathan Stuckey sought to discover how these Christian teenagers understood and experienced rest and the Sabbath. Here are some of the things he learned through these substantive conversations. Students felt the need to fill any unstructured time with activity. Students saw the need to stay busy as a cultural force larger than themselves. In other words, they felt rather powerless to stop this force. They defined rest in terms of 
relief from stress and productivity. And since anxiety about not being productive would creep into any moments of stillness, stillness did not feel like rest to them. When asked to write down the name of someone who makes Sabbath rest either more or less possible for them, in nearly every case, they named their parents, sometimes their grandparents. Nathan Stuckey concluded that these youth live under the assumption that their lives depend on their own productivity, achievement, and utility. I don't think these are surprising findings, but they are nevertheless sobering. They're not surprising because whether we're a teenager or an adult, they resonate in our own lives. True rest, as in being still, can leave us feeling restless and anxious. All of us know that the culture we live in values productivity. We wear busyness like badges of honor. Even when we go on vacation, we're so busy consuming that when we return from vacation, we need a vacation. Some of you may remember the commercial released by Cadillac in 2014, selling its luxury electric car, the ELR. It begins with actor Neil McDonough looking out at his large backyard swimming pool. From that point on, the camera follows him as he moves purposefully through his sprawling modern home. Walking past his child, he gives her a high five. Walking past his wife, he hands her the newspaper. We see him disappear into a bedroom and instantly come back out changed from his leisure wear into a business suit. The commercial ends with him in his new Cadillac, presumably to go to work. All the while, here is what he says. Why do we work so hard? For what? For this? For stuff? Other countries, they work. They stroll home. They stop by the cafe. They take August off. Off! Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we're crazy, driven, hard-working believers. That's why. Those other countries think we're nuts. Whatever. It's pretty simple. You work hard, you create your own luck, and you got to believe anything is possible. As for all the stuff, that's the upside of only taking two weeks off in August. N'est-ce pas? The story that this commercial tells is that it is all up to us, our hard work. Anything is possible if we work hard and without rest. There is no doubt we have created a culture that highly prioritizes productivity. A couple of weeks ago, the New York Times published an article entitled On the Clock and Tracked to the Minute. It reported on the increased use of technology to monitor employees' productivity across all kinds of labor. Architects, academic administrators, doctors, lawyers, engineers, even hospital chaplains are being monitored for efficiency and productivity. Some companies use cameras, tracking devices, software to monitor keystrokes, the movement of cursors, phone calls, and emails, seeking not just activity, but continuous streams 
of activity. Causes can lead to penalties. You can imagine the problem with such surveillance of productivity. Some employees haven't moved their cursor for minutes because they're using the restroom or collaborating with a colleague or taking a bit longer to help a client. They argue that pauses do not necessarily indicate a lack of productivity. And some workers who were interviewed for the article confessed that in order not to be penalized, stay in constant they stayed in constant motion while sitting at their desk thinking they moved the cursor even if they didn't need to. Theologian Karl Barth, in writing about human agency, made a distinction that I think is important here. He distinguished between an agent and an activity. Moreover, he wrote that it is really important to make this distinction. When an activity is never ending, when it is ceaseless, the activity becomes the agent, and we become slaves of it. To safeguard against this, it's important to put limits on our activities. They may seem counter, this may seem counterintuitive to us, since we often define freedom as the absence of limits, unlimited time, unlimited resources, unlimited options. The truth, however, is that we are free only when we can limit our activity. Could it be that God's commandment that we set apart a Sabbath day, a day when we will cease our work and rest, safeguards our freedom? Just as God freed the ancient Israelites from their captivity as slaves whose worth was measured exclusively in terms of productivity and efficiency, could it be that God wants us also to be free? And yet, Strangely, time and time again, we seek the false security of endless labor. We bind ourselves to our production, choose yield over grace, work over rest. We put all our trust in our effort, our work, our productivity. What if we didn't use every waking moment to work and produce? How would we survive? This is the question that Jesus knows is on the minds of those listeners in the crowd. They are anxious. It is interesting that all 39 categories of activities that Talmudic law forbids on the Sabbath have to do with material production, farming, weaving, kneading, writing, building, and so on. Everyone knew these things were necessary for survival. Jesus knew this too. And he tells those in the crowd that our Father in heaven also knows that we need these things. He doesn't tell them not to work. He tells them not to worry. When we look across the Gospels, we find 50 references to the Sabbath. The Gospels speak about the Sabbath more frequently than they mention murder, adultery, idolatry, stealing, coveting, and bearing false witness combined. There are 12 stories of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. He cures a man with a withered hand, a man with an unclean spirit, the fever of Simon's mother-in-law, a few sick people in his hometown, 
a woman who has been crippled by a spirit, a man with dropsy, a man who has been ill for 38 years, and a man who was born blind. Nearly all of these stories, Jesus must confront a view of the Sabbath into which, once again, the people had tethered themselves. Once again, they had bound themselves to the false security that everything rested on their efforts, their work, and productivity. They had missed the point of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is to free us from those conditions that reduce our identity and worth in terms of our productivity, in terms of what we are able or not able to do. It's tempting to interpret Jesus' healings on the Sabbath as an invitation to busy ourselves doing even more good acts. But that would be a misinterpretation. Jesus says he came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. And that includes setting apart the Sabbath so that we can be free to limit ourselves, to stop, to let go, to put down those things that we believe our lives depend upon. In order to imagine more concretely letting go or putting down or um, putting down something that you have believed your life depends on, picture this episode of Sesame Street in which Ernie wants to learn to play the saxophone. For instruction, Ernie goes to the band leader, Hoots the Owl. Hoots the Owl realizes that Ernie has a problem. Though he wants to play the saxophone, Ernie's devotion to his rubber ducky gets in the way. Since he won't put down his beloved rubber ducky, every time Ernie attempts to play the saxophone, he produces a squeak instead of a song. Being the observant and positive teacher that he is, Hoots composes a lesson to a song with a refrain that goes like, you gotta put the ducky down, put down the ducky, put down the duck, you gotta leave the duck alone, put down the duck if you wanna play the saxophone. (laughs) (laughs) What if our Sabbath practice began by naming those things that we believe we need in order to live? It's likely that these are the things that we need to cease, to pause, to put down. What would you put down so that you could have Sabbath rest? A provisional rest here and now is a taste of the promised rest that is to come. If we don't put those things down, how will we ever know And how will our children come to know that our worth as children of God cannot be reduced to any work we can or cannot do, but depends ultimately on God's grace? This summer in worship, we are spending time reflecting on the whys of our faith, why we worship, why we strive to be a witness in the community, why we practice being church, why we set apart the Sabbath. I invite you to reflect on the question, what is your rubber ducky? What is it that you need to cease, to pause, to put down, in order that you know your worth depends solely on God's grace?
In the pews, you will find a basket with cards that you're invited to use as you reflect. And for those who are worshiping online, we encourage you also to find a piece of paper nearby and record your reflection. We're calling this a personal affirmation of faith because it forms the beginning of our response to scripture and the word proclaimed. Your reflection can also be understood as an offering of yourself. So to that end, if you wish, you may place your reflection in the offering basket when it comes by later in the service. And if you're worshiping online, you may email it to one of your pastors. 